My guest today, Chicago-born and raised Roy Kinsey, is a bit of an anomaly. A black, queer-identified rapper and librarian, or as he puts it, raprarian. Roy's escape from trauma and creative outlet as a kid, it was writing and music and also a love of books and learning. And he began sharing his words and beats, rapping at a fairly young age, but really began to elevate the pursuit of music making in college, performing and refining his craft. Graduating, he began making a name for himself, performing and recording and releasing albums, while simultaneously earning degrees that would find him working as a librarian by day and an artist by night. And a few albums in, Roy began to feel like an essential part of him was being kept from his music and also his community. So he made the decision to come out as queer on an album at a time very few others in the space of rap and hip hop were out. And it was this moment that would transform him and his music. Roy has since released a series of powerful albums, including his latest reflection, Kinsey, a memoir. He's been featured on the cover of major publications like Chicago Reader, Chicago Tribune, in major and international publications like Billboard, LA Times, NPR, and others. And Roy has even found a way to bring his love of music and books together, running workshops as a librarian in the Teen Services U Media Department for the Chicago Public Libraries. So excited to share this conversation with you. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Good Life Project is brought to you by Understood Explains, a podcast that's like a beacon for parents navigating the special education system. Hosted by Juliana Urtube, a special education expert, this season is all about individualized education plans, or IEPs. Juliana breaks down complex topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP in a way that's easy to grasp. I checked out an episode of Understood Explains about the difference between IEPs and 504 plans, and I was struck by the balance of empathy and practical advice. It's not just about understanding the system. It's about empowering parents and caregivers to advocate for their children, which is just so important. So I've known a number of people who've had to literally scramble to figure out how to advocate for their kids when the system seemed to just make it so hard to get the support that they need and deserve. So if you're a parent navigating this world or even just wondering if it's right for your family, I encourage you to give Understood Explains a listen. Search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. It's like having a roadmap for a journey you didn't expect, making it a little less daunting. Good Life Project is sponsored by LinkedIn Ads. So as a business-to-business marketer, your needs are unique. B2B buying cycles are long and your customers face incredibly complex decisions. So isn't it time you had a marketing platform built specifically for you? LinkedIn Ads empowers marketers with solutions tailored for B2B. Imagine having direct access to a billion professionals, including 180 million senior executives and 10 million C-level leaders with LinkedIn's powerful targeting tools built for B2B, you can drive serious results. 
LinkedIn ads generated two to five times higher return on ad spend than other social platforms in the technology space. We've actually tapped the power of LinkedIn ads a number of times ourselves, and the campaigns have been really successful. If you're ready to revolutionize your B2B marketing, try LinkedIn ads with a $100 credit on your next campaign. Terms and conditions apply. Go to linkedin.com slash goodlifeproject to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash goodlifeproject, or just click the link in the show notes. Terms and conditions apply. Tell me if this is true. Your parents met in a way that kind of foreshadowed your future in a little bit like they, they didn't meet in a bar they didn't meet in a party is it actually true that they met at a library oh yeah of course it's a uh, i've had my own moments with that story but it's the absolute truth my mother was going to an interview uh at what was the large library then it's the cultural center and my father was working at a desk so i guess he you know slipped some game in but yeah, that's where that's where they met. And then my mother was working actually on the the floor where the music was, where all the film, where all the vinyls and all that stuff was. This is not Harold Washington Library. Uh, this is before Harold Washington Library. And um, they met. Their first date was Purple Rain. Oh, the movie? Yeah. Their first date was to go see Purple Rain, the movie. That is an auspicious first date. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. My dad loved Prince. And it was really interesting because when I was putting out Kenzie, a memoir, that is very reminiscent to me in a lot of ways of the story of Purple Rain uh, and Prince. The first place that I was asked to come pretty much to drop the album actually was to First Avenue for a sold out show. And that's where my father lives now. My father has lived in Minnesota for longer than 20 years, 25, 30 years, probably which is why this album is a purple one. So I, why I, you know, made the, the vinyl purple, but uh, it was the first show that I was asked to come and do at Prince's Club where my father would walk in and see me performing in his hometown right before the shutdown. So it was the first and last show that I got to perform before we, you know, before the, the pandemic times. Matt, what, what was that like for you? It was magical. It was so, so amazing. I felt like Prince called me there. I felt like Prince called me, you know, called me to be there and not knowing that things would shut down in, in a couple of weeks after that. But I think that it sustained me in a way I really miss performing. And for it to be a sold out show, I you know, was called by Dessa. So Dessa of Doomtree, who, you know, lives in Minnesota, is a artist and author in her own right, uh, of course, asked me to come and open for her. So I do this sold out show and it was just one of the most magical experiences that I've had thus far. Uh, the reception was so, so incredible. And, um, you know, the people of Minnesota really made me feel like a star that day. And so it was just a lot of moments that were more magical and more synchronous than even, you know, just the 40 minutes I was on stage. It was just a whole magical experience. Yeah, it's sort of like everything was leading up to that moment. Have you talked to your dad about that, his experience of that show? Yeah, it was so funny. My dad is a very mysterious guy. So when he came, I didn't see him. He called me 
told me it was a great show and all that. But I think just the way that my mind works and the art that I was moving through and the art that I was making and and where I was in that space, I can't lie that I was like, I don't even know if he came. I don't even know if he was even actually here. And then, but me and my dad have this really interesting connection. I mean, you have that connection with your parents. You have that connection with people that brought you into the world where it doesn't have to be so literal or on the phone or show me proof or whatever. Like I have that tie with my parents. My parents know when I'm going through something, whether I talk to them or not, you know what I mean? Like they'll feel it from across town or across state or across the country. And so uh, randomly two or three weeks later, he sends me a video of me like on my last song, you know, rocking the stage. And I was like, okay. Right. He was legit there. <laughs> he was there. <laughs> he was there. That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, as, as a dad, I think, uh, you know, and a son, there is that connection. There's that sort of like thing, which, you know, I'm a fairly practical person, but there's also, there's certain things like that that I just believe in where you just feel something, you know, it doesn't matter yeah. where you are. Um, I know you're also really close with your grandma coming up as well, right? Oh, yeah, my bestie. That was. Yeah, tell me more about her. Helen Thompson, she was born in 1943 in Ellisville, Mississippi. And I love to speak her name. She was one of the first people that clapped for me and made a really big deal out of me knowing how to read. Uh, On my seventh birthday, she made me the protagonist of this book. It was a story of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. It should be around here somewhere, but... Oh, it's right there. Hold on. So in this in this book that my grandmother gave me, my tribute to Martin Luther King Jr., I am the protagonist of this book. And, and I'm writing a paper on Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, I tell the story of his life, but I'm, you know, in the beginning saying, oh, telling my cousins, Ricky, Craig, Turtle, I have to write this paper on Martin Luther King Jr., blah, blah, blah. So then I go into the story. By the end of the story, I've told this whole thing. I turn it in. I get an A on the paper. That is the book, right? So not only did my grandmother clap for me when she seen me reading and seen that I, like, you know, had a love for words, she used to, you know, go to my kindergarten classes with me and sit in there, walk me home. And then when I began talking, she would say, <laughs> she would call me radio or lawnmower, she said, because I talk so much, (laughs) she would call me that. And uh, that was a foreshadowing in itself, right? I mean, of me getting an A on the paper, maybe the paper was the Blackie album, right? Um, Me being able to use my words for the upliftment of myself, and marginalized communities. And it was really just kind of like thinking about this is a power device and words and education, literature uh, are a power device. So we were really, really close. I would go over to her house through my college years. And it's the wildest thing because I was watching Sylvie's Love a week or two ago and all these jams are coming on. And it's just beautiful music. And one of them is like Sam Cooke's song. And that's how me and my grandmother bonded when I was that age, Mm -hmm. was like listening to Sam Cooke front to back. And I'm like in my 20s thinking, like even 
watching the film last week, I'm like, yo, I haven't really listened to any of this soul music in a really, really long time. And it was interesting to have that connection with my grandmother. I would go over there. She would drink her beers, her warm old Milwaukee. I would drink whatever I was drinking. We would just like vibe out listening to Sam Cooke and Aretha Franklin. And I would ask her about her life. And I've always been interested in asking about the lives of her especially, but of my family. And so when she passed away, that was the way that I thought that I would be able to honor her and to honor everybody who was a part of the Great Migration and all of the ancestors. That's how I thought that I would honor them. That's how I thought that I could honor hip hop and adding something to that canon. And I also had a question, which was why didn't I really see the story of the Great Migration and hip hop when we rep our cities pretty frequently like we you know like that that's a huge part of hip-hop and i didn't really understand that if we were talking about space and place why this story hadn't been one that was you know kind of on the on the record and so i learned a lot you know of that from my grandmother but that but i hadn't at up until that point you know when she died in 2016 i hadn't lost anybody that close to me and so it really uh, shook me and changed me in a in a extremely profound way. Yeah, I mean, and we're talking about the album Blackie here, which I guess so. You, your grandma passed in 2016. The album drops 2018, from what I remember, right? Correct. Yeah, which was this really? I mean, it's like this really um, powerful blend. It's a look at history. It's sort of like a tracing of lineage and trauma and evolution, but it's also it's an offering to your grandma. I mean, it, it kind of it feels like this was not just you creating art, not just you bringing a, a certain moment in history and, and journey for a lot of people to the public, but also this was you sort of like speaking to her um, through the album to a certain extent. Absolutely. Because there were things that I realized that I didn't understand about her life until she passed away. And that's a thing that I think a lot of people experience once a person that they thought was going to be here, you know, for a long time, kind of like, and it wasn't sudden to me. I think that up up until that, I mean, it was sudden to me, but, but I think, you know, you're very naive in a way uh, up until you really lose someone that is very important and instrumental to your life. And so when I'm thinking about it and also reading the warmth of other sons that definitely inspired my thinking and my writing, of that album, I was just like, oh, my grandma's not just my grandma. My grandmother was part of this wave of people that was leaving the South to come to places like Chicago and Oakland and Harlem and Northern cities for a better life. And people, you know, a lot of times definitely are naturally nomadic, but more than not, people are leaving for a better life. And uh, I couldn't imagine that my family was any different uh, than any of the millions of Black folks that was leaving the South, you know, for, you know, for a better life. And so thinking about what she had come up against and really going through my whole experience of 
27 through 32 in astrological uh, spaces. They call it your Saturn return. And that is the, that is a time where you're pretty much shaking off what can't come with you to adulthood. Right. And so it means that you might experience a life changing breakup or a death in my case, whatever's about to mature you, right? It'll be a personalized set of circumstances. That was what was happening for me. And um, I was really confused about what was happening in America for the first time. My parents had seen it. People had seen what it meant, but it was my first go around with seeing a person get off for killing Mike Brown and leaving my master's program one night after class, listening to the radio. And the radio was so, it's just such a somber tone as they say that this police officer won't be arrested. And that was just what my experience was for the first time in my life, right? For the first time in my life, I'm experiencing literally watching people get off for killing Black folks. I'm logging onto social media and not choosing to see, you know, a video. A video will literally start playing on my screen before I, you know, so I'm watching Black death on a loop. And I had to, and so grateful to have a container to have put those feelings and those expressions and those sentiments from a micro to a macro level, from my family to, you know, a collective, an American collective, right? Like this is what we are all experiencing. We're experiencing generational trauma as well as trauma in a digital age. And it's, and it was just wild, wild to me. Yeah. I mean, I couldn't imagine because you also, um, when Blackie came out, you toured that album afterwards, from what I remember, also for a bit, right? I definitely toured some libraries around Chicago, and then I did a lot of shows in and around Chicago, right. definitely. Mm-hmm. I guess I'm curious what it was like, because writing this album um, and then recording it is sort of, you know, is one part of the process. But then when you go out and you're performing this around, you, there's a lot of trauma in the album. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, I guess, when you're performing that, how does that land like with you just personally? It was wonderful at first. When I was first performing it, it was cathartic. It was very healing for me. I was lucky to have worked out a lot of the album in front of people before the album had come out. So a lot of the songs really kind of weren't written, but I was asked to do this thing. And, and and I think that I had just read The Year of Yes by Shonda Rhimes, where I was kind of like, you know what? I am not going to tell myself no anymore. So somebody asked me to perform as part of the One Book, One Chicago events that they were having. So the book was, I'll Take You There, by Mavis Staples, and uh, was asking me to host open mics. And I was just like, where did this come from in my mind? I'm like, where did this come from? Like, And then I was just like, yo, yes, whatever. It came to me, say yes. And then 
I had an idea to kind of form that into something else, which is like, I am going to take this opportunity to work out these songs that are kind of different from the songs that I have, that I've done in the past. It seems like they're pretty on brand, right? I'm telling a story of the great migration, you know, Mavis Staples and Staples singers, they from the South Dockery actually. Um, So I'm finding a lot of ways to kind of plug this in. And so I, you know, worked that, work that part out in front of people. But then I go and take a song like Jungle Book and perform it in, in front of people for the first time. And actually, even before that, I practice a lot in my car, uh, <laughs> um, rapping the songs. And I knew what I wrote. We recorded it. But then I'm practicing the song in the car. And for the first time, I feel myself like, yelling rapping the song until I'm like crying and I'm just like not really knowing what that was right like overcome with emotion and then I do this in front of you know at at these library performances and and I think being exposed and showing this emotion that is one that I usually kind of tuck away one of anger for a lot of different reasons it's continuing to come out And I'm like, oh, I definitely have something here that is different from what I've done before. So it was healing to be able to have a space to be angry, to honor hip hop, to honor my grandmother, to let people who came to these library shows and everyone else know that a rapper is experiencing the same thing that you're experiencing and sees this because I think that that was the thing that I was also experiencing while making the album is like, yo, this is crazy making the fact that I'm watching a lot of artists not say anything about this. Right. And so there's importance in representation. There's importance in being seen and letting people know, like, no, you are not going crazy. I've seen that too. So it began really healing and cathartic. And then I think by the time I was, you know, moving around two years and, you know, it was just a, it was just a cycle. It had become to me re-traumatizing to have to perform these songs that hold so much anger and pain for me. And then, you know, I am not different in the way I can't just perform this song. Like I don't have feelings, even if I've tried to move from a different state. So I was beginning to feel burnt out and like I was re-traumatizing myself because I'm bringing so much here, I'm like, before the show, building an altar and doing, you know, before every show, right? Like bringing pictures of my grandmother and doing all this thing. That is just, it's not, that's not part of the show. That's not part of the show. It's part for me, but it was just a lot of energy moving before and after the show. I feel like I'm getting people opened up at the show. So people are literally going through a range of emotions. They're laughing, they're crying. And um, I was really just kind of feeling like, I don't know 
about this anymore. I don't know about performing these songs in front of, I don't know about crying about being a black man in America on stage anymore. I don't know if that's like, it was never what I wanted to do in the first place, but now it just seems like more of the show. It seems like more of an exploitation, especially because I'm not seeing anything necessarily happening. It was just weird. It's still very confusing for me, actually. If I, I may sound <laughs> confusing and confused about the entire thing, but uh, I, I do know those two feelings for sure. Yeah, I mean, it's. I, th- I think so many people would see, you go to a show, you know, and you hear you hear music, you hear, you know, the performance side of things and it resonates with you in really powerful ways, but we probably don't think all that much about how it's affecting the performer, the person on stage, you know, especially when you're talking about really hard things and traumatizing things, both on a very personal level and on a, you know, like systemic and society wide level, which is why I was curious about that because, um, yeah. And, and it, it is, it's helpful to sort of like see inside the way that you experienced it. Um, we kind of jumped into the deep end of the pool, like zoomed forward to, to 2018, you know, it, in no small part because Blackie was, you know, really brought your grandma in who was such an early influence for you. Yeah. And it sounds like music, music and books, music reading and books were a part of your life from the earliest days. This mm-hmm. was something where it was sort of like a go-to to you. And I guess in high school, it sounds like you kept notebooks from the earliest days. So like working out lines, working out. I'm curious for you, what was the why behind the notebooks? Were, were you doing it because you saw yourself as putting together things that you would eventually perform? Or was it was it healing? Was it was it an escape? Was it all the above or, or things that I haven't even mentioned? Mm-hmm. I've always kept a journal from as early as I can remember. I've had in my earliest, earliest memories of being with my mother and my grandmother. My mom used to write songs. She used to write the lyrics to Whitney Houston songs to learn them with my grandmother. Right? So I seen that. I never needed to write down artists' songs to learn them. I know a lot of songs just by listening to them a million times. But I loved artistry and I loved musicians and love musicians so much that I wanted to be one. It seems like those were the freest Black folks that I had ever known and had ever seen. And I wanted to do that and I wanted to be that. And so around the time of my adolescence, I'm really then seeing people like Eminem not only be a really great rapper, but be a rapper that is kind of like carrying notebooks. I think that I just always had a real connection with my words. And so I always wanted to like stash them somewhere. (laughs) I always wanted to stash my words and my thoughts somewhere, but I always knew and always wanted to be a rapper for a long, for a really, really long time. As long as I can remember, I always wanted to be a, be a rapper. And, um, writing these words down, although it felt like I was carrying a notebook around probably 10, 15 years before I even said anything to anybody or performed, you know, and took it to that next level. Like it was senior year when I went and actually like recorded a song, right? But I was carrying a notebook around since I was probably like second or third grade. 
the first one was gold and had a lock on it. It was definitely a little <laughs> diary. It was definitely a little diary, you know? Um, but I always just felt like that was me and that was my kind of connection to myself. Um, I think about people like Tupac, uh, who wrote, who just wrote. And I always found that really fascinating um, that, you know, there's books published out with his handwritten poetry and his handwritten lyrics. And you see where, so I, I just have always loved that. For some reason, I've always loved pens and paper and books and journals and people kind of walking around with those. I've just always loved the spoken word, always loved the poet. Yeah. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Good Life Project is sponsored by LinkedIn Ads. So as a business-to-business marketer, your needs are unique. B2B buying cycles are long and your customers face incredibly complex decisions. So isn't it time you had a marketing platform built specifically for you? LinkedIn Ads empowers marketers with solutions tailored for B2B. Imagine having direct access to a billion professionals, including 180 million senior executives and 10 million C-level leaders with LinkedIn's powerful targeting tools built for B2B, you can drive serious results. LinkedIn ads generated two to five times higher return on ad spend than other social platforms in the technology space. We've actually tapped the power of LinkedIn ads a number of times ourselves, and the campaigns have been really successful. If you're ready to revolutionize your B2B marketing, try LinkedIn ads with a $100 credit on your next campaign. Terms and conditions apply. Go to linkedin.com slash goodlifeproject to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash goodlifeproject, or just click the link in the show notes. Terms and conditions apply. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select 
then unwinding with the available front row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. I mean, it sounds like that it started with a spoken word. You always had in your mind sort of like these were going to be shared with the world at some point. Starts to find an outlet in high school. But it sounds like things things really changed. Also, you end up in DePaul, like after mm-hmm. high school, and I know you you connect. I don't know when it was when you were there, but at some point you connect with Nick Castle, who goes by DJ Castle. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like when you two sort of like connect, that's a moment for you where sort of like the the way that you approach the art and what you're doing really starts to evolve. For sure. Oh yeah, that's my buddy. I tell people often that he's the person that made me a professional and I think that he and I think that he explained that to me he didn't explain I made you a professional it wasn't like that but it was you become a professional the first time you get paid for the thing that you do and Nick Castle was definitely the first person to invite me out to um spit some rhymes at a at a bar I don't know if it was a live one or a tonic room not far from the DePaul campus and uh he asked me to rap a couple songs and I did and he paid me and that's what made me, made me a professional. But there was this other thing that was going on, which was that uh, it was like the wild, wild West, you know, around this time where so many rappers wanted to get on and there were showcases that we would do in Chicago where we would get six minutes. We had to sell 20 tickets a piece for $20 to our fans and friends or whoever would buy tickets from us and be like, yo, we're, you know, we're going to be performing at Wild Hair on this night. We had to turn that money over to a promoter who has stacked this bill of like 30 other hungry rappers. And we're all opening for whoever the rapper is. So clearly all that money that we just hustled throughout Chicago was going to them. And it was, and it was a bunch of people I've done. I did it a good 10 times. And it was uh, people from Keith Murray to Twista to Big Sean. But knowing that we only had seven minutes, you know, I was with the DJ. A lot of the, the thing that set me apart was that a lot of these rappers were going on stage and they just like would hand the hand, whoever a CD, you know, but that eats your time up like that. That's two songs. That's three songs. Nick Castle, a professional DJ, would say, we have to make the best of this little time that we have. And so I'm going to pretty much take the BPM that you're rapping on, on these original beats, and we're going to put you on beats uh, that are popping already, that are, you know, already Famous. So it was like a live mixtape, actually. And so I am rapping consistently for this seven, eight minutes, and he is changing the beat every 30 seconds. And so that was the hook, right? People are just kind of like, you know, they fall in because they know these songs already, but they haven't heard me rap. So it's original bars on beats that they know. And that was just, it was, it was mixtape era. But I never had put out a mixtape like that. But my live show was a was definitely a mixtape. And um, yeah, we made we made a lot of magic, but he really helped me to be a professional. And um, 
you know, in a lot of ways and really just kind of having a very high level and a high standard of the performance. And um, I love him and I, you know, I'll always appreciate that about him. Yeah. I mean, it, it seems like there's this, there's this bridge sort of experience where the craft really becomes much more front and center. You know, mm-hmm. it's like, okay, the words really matter. Yes. And, but like the entire thing from end to end, there's a craft element to this that is critical and like really transformational in the way that people experience it. Yeah, absolutely. People are coming to see a show and there's a lot of different elements that go into people having a really great experience. And that's what I always try to bring, you know, for people. I never want people to leave my show and be like, I could have stayed home. You know, I never, never want that. Because I operate that way and because I create from that way, I feel that way. So it's like, you know, where I'm like, what? I could have stayed at home for this. You know, like, you know. I think we all feel that way. It's like we, yeah. we got a limited amount of time in our lives. And if we're going to yeah. allocate it to do something, we want it to be worth it. Yeah, absolutely. You started, you know, essentially producing your own stuff and you start putting out albums. You know, at some point, Rookie of the Year comes out. And then there's this really interesting moment. I think it's. 2013 beautiful only drops right Mm -hmm. which is effectively a coming out album for you you know different pronouns Mm. so i'm curious what's happening in your life um and in your thought process between rookie of the year and beautiful only that sort of leads you to this place that says okay i need to present myself on a truer level to the industry to my colleagues and also to my fans yeah, that's a great question. I just, I always looked at hip hop, true hip hop, to be a space where you should be your most authentic self. Somebody asked DMX about a ghostwriter years ago, and he said, if they can't write it, they don't need to be saying it, right? And uh, and I am just from that era, you know, where I felt like if I didn't say it, especially thinking about the music that I had made on Keep the Receipts, Rookie of the Year, where I would be using pronouns. And up until that point, you know, I had had girlfriends and had done all these things. It was just something that was really sitting within me where I'm just kind of like, it's time for me to come out and say this. And this is the evolution of hip hop. Hip hop is not, oh, can I come and be a gay rapper in your thing? It's like, no, I'm about to snatch this mic like everybody else snatched their mic and, and, and set their piece. And um, at that moment, it was really, really important to me because I felt like if I didn't say it, that I was hiding something for some reason. I just kind of felt like that. And so I knew that it was necessary. I knew that we were moving in that direction of, queer voices who had always been around in hip hop uh, and influencing hip hop. I think it was just time for us to, to step up to the mic. And um, that's what I wanted to do on that album. Yeah. How did it land? I mean, how did it land with, with the, with the industry, how did it land with colleagues and how did it land with fans when you came out? And I'm curious whether you know, even though you were feeling like, okay, so this is the thing I can't not do. Did you have hesitation? And then once it was out there, what was the response? I don't remember any bad responses. If there was anything that was said, 
it really it wasn't said to me there nothing reached me that impacted me negatively and i didn't really have you know i was still ascending i'd say and so didn't have a lot of uh expectation from anyone i can't say one way or another if things would have been different if i was straight i would have no way of knowing that what i did know is that I was a good rapper and wanted to be a good rapper and wanted to be a better rapper and that nobody would be able to deny if I was or not. And that was the thing that I always cared about. That's the thing that I still care about is that you can say, you know, really kind of whatever you want or feel whatever way that you want. But I'm at peace. I'm at peace because, you know, I followed my intuition about a thing and it really is whatever. Now, I've all, you know, definitely had moments where I felt like I was treated a certain way, but that it literally could be for any reason. I'd say that I got more love than hate. And we zero in on the negativity a lot of times, but uh, no, I, I have always really gotten a lot of love from my city in the music industry. And that's the thing that kind of made me continue to make music. And I think, you know, if there was any negativity, it probably was what I was using as fuel up until (laughs) until that point. So I'm like, bring it on. I was, I was fearless back then. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting too, because you, you, you start out by saying, yeah, like when you get on stage, somebody hands you the mic, nobody really cares who you are or how you identify what they want to do. You know, like, or the next 10 minutes or half an hour or hour, whatever it is, am I going to love this experience like right here and now? Um, but, but I feel like also it's not just music, but a lot of industries, but I feel like in music in particular, everyone, everyone wants to genreify you, you know? Mm-hmm. And part of that is, is not what's well, okay. So what is the subcategory of rap? But also, you know, like, well, are you like, is it queer rap? Is it? Rap? Mm-hmm. And it's like, but can it just be rap? And I happen to be mm-hmm. a queer identifying person. Um, mm-hmm. And and I, so I guess that was part of my curiosity is whether like once you're out, like whether people start wanting to sort of try and figure out what's the right box to, to put you in in the industry. Sure. It's always interesting to me when people ask me like, <laughs> so, you know, who do you rap like? You know, are you like, like what kind of, I'm like, it's an album. Go listen to it. Go listen to the album. You know what I mean? Like you want me to describe my album to you uh, or describe my, my, my style, but that's just where we are. We've gotten very lazy as a people and lazy as a culture. And I think that it exists in the music industry, but it's definitely on a lot of platforms as well, where you have to hashtag this thing. You have to market this thing. You have to sell this thing you have to box it up and package it and put it out there and and we forget that we're you know real big humans that contain multitudes and so we want the cliff notes for the album we don't listen for pleasure anymore we don't there's a lot that we really don't do and it actually takes the fun out of things that we found pleasurable whether it be listening to music or reading a book or you know we just want it quick and dirty so yeah i've absolutely experienced that but i think that there is a uh, mystique that 
you kind of want to hold on to and not just for the sake of being, you know, cryptic, but me personally, the way that I approach music is that I'm a prophet, you know, and I think that my job is a lot of times to go out on my own journey and bring something back. And, and, it, and it gets difficult when you are a person like that in a digital world, you know, uh, Erica calls herself analog girl in a digital world. Right. And that's just kind of how you feel a lot of times. It's just like, you're not, I'm not of the world. I'm just, I'm just in it. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm really just in it. So I feel spiritual in a lot of ways. It's literally what my name means. My, my middle name is D'Angelo. It means messenger of the angels. And a lot of times I really do feel like that's what, that's what's held on, on the Blackie album. That's what is on the Kenzie album is a conversation between me and ancestors, me and higher powers to bring back to the people. Right. And that's not easy. That's not an easy thing, you know, beyond being uh, a prophet, I feel very much like an empath. I feel very much like a person who knows that, who is in a constant conversation with higher powers and with ancestors and, and things like that. And it takes a real discipline. You know, a lot of times I was just like, I don't want to, you know, when I talked about being re-traumatizing, I'm like, I'm tired. I don't want to be sad. I don't want to make this music. I don't want to do, you know, I don't want to do this, but I also understand that I am from a legacy of, you know, I, I would call what I'm doing blues rap a lot of times, but I also feel like I am from a legacy of people who have contributed so much. And I have not reinvented anything. There were queer rappers, there were queer musicians. Forever. <laughs> Forever. Forever. And that needs that needs to be known, you know, and that needs to be known. I mean, I think Langston Hughes' estate still is saying that he wasn't a queer man, right? Like, what are we ta- <laughs> what are we talking about here, right? So it's really important because I've always used story and spoken word as a power device, but also just knowing that you're not the first and you're not alone, just go so far and it helps so much. And if I can leave something, you know, as a legacy, but just so the next uh, a generation after me doesn't have to work so hard or, you know, dig so deep, let's just put it, put it right here, you know, so you can get on with your life and you can have a, a high quality of life without trying to, or having to spend so much time undoing what we were hoping ancestors would you know, done for us or did do for us and they got buried or hidden or whatever. Yeah. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight-up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. 
the all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front-row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. I mean, it's really interesting. It kind of feels like Beautiful Only comes out in 2013 and it's sort of like saying, okay, so this is who I am. I'm still an artist, but this is who I am just as an individual also. And I'm going to talk about it. I'm, I'm going to rap about it. I'm going to create. I'm going to offer from it. And then in the beginning of last year, before everything started to go crazy, you dropped Kinsey a memoir, which I guess was February, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like, we don't know what's about to hit, but there, Kinsey it feels like a really interesting bookend to me to Beautiful Only. Not like the book is over or the story is over, but the album feels like in a weird way, a homecoming to me. Mm. That's nice. It's a nice way to put that. And I, and I, and I can see that. I don't think that I've ever put those two together. It's really interesting because yesterday I was working on an artist's resume because this year I want to begin, um, just building more things, building more of an infrastructure for myself, trying to work on funding and grants and all that stuff. But I was working on an artist's resume, just writing down all of the shows that I've done, venues I've played, cities, press. And I've seen Beautiful Only on there. And I think that I talked about Beautiful Only being a coming out album more than it actually holding what I needed it to hold. So definitely there was a song that was dedicated to a guy on there. Absolutely. There was a companion piece of a video that was an interview that talked about being black and queer in hip hop industry. But I think that once Kenzie was created and thinking about the songs that I was making and that was, so you nailed it, right? Um, it's Fetish is a song on Kinsey that scared the hell out of me, but it really just kind of, I just gave it the space. And that's one of the things that I'm talking about when I talk about being an empath or being able to meet my creativity and understanding that my creativity is a negotiation and a conversation between myself and a higher power and not just like, Ooh, I'm about to write this. This is going to be controversial. You know what I mean? It's not ever that it's really kind of like leaving that door open in that creative mode. And I just found myself in my space and the words were fetish to fetish were really just kind of like coming out. But even in that song, the person that is in front of 
the place that I go into, I just never forgot that. It was all of five seconds, but he said, trust ain't nothing going on. You know, that was like, I'm like, oh, that's a sage. That was a, you know, that was, (laughs) and we've had those, right? We've had, I'm starting a book called The Prophets, which is a queer love story that takes place on the plantation. And I just finished Terrell Alvin McCraney's Brother Sister Plays. So Terrell Alvin McCraney, you know, of course, wrote Moonlight. And uh, I was at the library a couple weeks ago when somebody ordered that book and I pulled it off. And I'm like, what? I had no idea that Terrell Alvin McCraney like wrote this book that is deeply rooted in African spirituality, which he's taking these gods and drop them in, you know, present day Louisiana and New Orleans and made them characters. And my favorite god and character is Elegua, who was queer in the book. And I'm like, it's just so funny how the thing that you need finds you when it was supposed to, right? So I'm sure that even the music that I'll make after Kenzie it's st- you know there are layers of shame and guilt to shed i believe and so i'm really just kind of happy with everything that that i come across but kenzie is absolutely the album that i wanted to make yeah i really just want to be more and more myself when i'm recording yeah I mean, it's, you you mentioned uh, somebody came into the library a couple uh, weeks ago. So there's this whole other through line that we talked about in the very beginning, you know, about your love of reading and books. While all this is going on, while you're expressing yourself musically, you also have this passion for books. Um, and it, it ends up taking you through a master's program. And then you end up like your full-time gig is you're a librarian. Mm-hmm. But also you're a librarian in you know, like in Chicago libraries and you focus a lot of your energy on on teen services and, and sort of like youth generated media there. So it, it seems like they're not two separate lives. They're like two passions, two things that it seems like really make you come alive and, and you love in different ways. And they also, they weave sort of together in interesting ways as well. Oh, yeah. I thought that they were separate for a really long time and treated them as such, but it wasn't until I was sitting in my storytelling class during that master's program and questioning, like, do these things go together? <laughs> and I think about the term rapbrarian that kind of came of me being in that class, like, oh, I'm the rapbrarian. And this actually makes a little too much sense, right? I mean, I'm informed by words and stories and I'm using stories and books to have the best quality of life that I can. And um, when I understood that, I understood another part of myself. I understood the importance of being and seeing a Black male librarian. I understood information and education as power. I finally understood for myself, one of the things that my mother would always tell me is that people can take whatever they want from you, but they'll never be able to take your education. They'll never be able to take 
you know, what you know. And uh, so there were a lot of things that I was understanding for myself. And then I think with my programming, I think that being able to then do a program like a rap writing workshop where I am literally just teaching teens how to use their voice and their story for empowerment, right? I am in a really interesting spot on the west side of Chicago and the kids love rap and love making rap, although they hadn't lived the life that they're rapping about. Now their stars are rapping about this life, whether they live this life or not, whatever, but they are rapping this and I know these kids and they didn't do that. They might, they might go out and, and do a lot of this stuff, but but my job doing, you know, rap writing workshops is to teach them that their life is valid and their life is important and that they have to, you know, live through things. But I'm always just asking them to pull from their lives and write a verse about that, right? Like write a verse about what your experience is and, and your thoughts and uh, how you approach certain situations or advice that you've gotten, right? Your life is valid. Your life is, you know, real and your life is yours. And I think that that could be a extremely powerful thing. I know how I started rapping and, it's, and it was definitely emulating my favorite rappers, right? And talking about certain things or even stealing their verses, right? Um, so you do have to kind of develop your voice, but I think that if I would have known that it was cool to rap about my life and understand myself earlier, then that was something that I would have done earlier. Yeah. I mean that, I love that. Um, I also love that, you know, you do this in the context of a library where you can give them the invitation to go into themselves. But as you know, as we do that so often, especially when like you're younger, you know, a lot of questions come up. And you also have, you have the experience and the knowledge and then the container of a library system to kind of be able to help direct them if it comes up and say, like, there's actually a larger, like that thing you're feeling right now, you know, there's a, a larger history around that. Like there's a bigger context. And actually, if, if you're curious about it, like I can help point you to like these different things. Absolutely. I mean, that's what my work is because that's what I did for myself told you my parents met at a library and I grew up in libraries. I was in, I was volunteering in libraries. It was my first job. I've worked in libraries for more than half my life. And when I had questions about myself, I'm like, oh, let me go to this book over here. I'm like, oh, okay. So I'm not the first gay person. Good. <laughs> oh, I'm not the first uh, gay rapper. Great. That was great information for me to know. Oh, James Baldwin. Oh, cool. You know what I mean? Like, so that's our job. That's our duty. It's not even a choice at this point. It is our duty to make the generation after us make their lives better and to pass, you know, certain information down, literally information, right? And so um, just being in that space and understanding the issue and the time that we're in, that so many people that I serve are suffering from the digital divide, that so many people will be lost because of the access that they don't have 
to certain information or certain stories or knowing how to look for things. There's so much information out there and we are actually probably more lost than we were only 10 or 20 years ago because it's become so convincing and and there's so much misinformation and disinformation that just because it looks legit, it really doesn't. And that's just a, you know, an aside, but to kind of stay on topic is that I understand a lot about the the field of information, but I also understand people as libraries themselves, right? And there's a lot that we have to kind of figure out in ourselves. And, and a lot of times our eyes are always focused on everything outside of us, but like, you know, how do we make sense of our inner worlds? And I think that that's what I've spent a lifetime doing in a library system, becoming who I am as a rapper, poet, and a librarian is kind of like I've used information in this way to kind of sort through my inner world and my inner life. And I really want to teach people that richness and and I want people to understand themselves better because I just don't feel like society gives us that opportunity to understand ourselves very well. I think that we're asked to understand literally everything else, but ourselves and our inner worlds. We're not asked to understand our thoughts. We're not asked to understand our spirituality or our spirits or our uh, emotions. And so that's kind of a lot of what I've used that library space for. And I want to, I want people to know that I want people to know that they can and should do that. Yeah, I, I love that notion of, I think your your language was understanding people as libraries themselves. I, I love that idea. Oh, yeah. You know, yes, there's a vast resource of, of information all around us, but also there's a whole lot to mine within us as well. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, there's this uh, idea, I think it comes from Africa, and a man actually told me this in the library. And that's the other thing. I've learned so much just from people coming into the library and having conversations with me. And 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 that's what they talk about. You know, a lot of times people won't ever pick up a book at the library, but they come to have conversations with people. And, and that's a learning mechanism as well, right? Being able to have conversation with people. But what that person said was that in Africa, uh, we celebrate days on end, maybe 30 when an elder dies because it's like a library has burned to the ground. And you won't ever get that information back if you didn't spend time asking grandma stories or learning those recipes or learning that wisdom that was only contained from the passing of one mouth to another's ears, right? There's a lot that hasn't been captured. There's a lot that hasn't been documented. And so, you know, I just love wisdom and learning and experience. And and so I love the space and I want people to love it too. Mm. It feels like a good place for us to come full circle in our conversation as well. So hanging out in this container of Good Life Project, if I offer up the phrase to live a good life, what comes up? Uh, To live a good life means to be at peace. Yeah, I think in the beginning, I always thought of things or acquiring things 
being able to get whatever you want it right it's a good life but at this point i'm like a good life is being at peace mm, thank you Thank you so much for listening, and thanks also to our fantastic sponsors who help make this show possible. You can check them out in the links we have included in today's show notes. And while you're at it, if you've ever asked yourself, what should I do with my life? We have created a really cool online assessment that will help you discover the source code for the work that you're here to do. You can find it at sparkatype.com. That's S-P-A-R-K-E. T-Y-P-E.com or just click the link in the show notes. And of course, if you haven't already done so, be sure to click on the subscribe button in your listening app so you never miss an episode. And then share, share the love. If there's something that you've heard in this episode that you would love to turn into a conversation, share it with people and have that conversation. Because when ideas become conversations that lead to action, that's when real change takes hold. See you next time.